Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the 360T Podcast with myself, Galen Stops. I'm delighted to be joined today by Owen Fahey, Head of Responsible Investment at KPI Global Investors. Owen, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. So, Obviously, your job title, Head of Responsible Investing. If I go on KBI Global Investor website, there's lots of talk about the firm's commitment to responsible investing. What does this actually entail, this term, responsible investing? Well, I think possibly the easiest way of all to explain this, really, again, is simply to say that every time we make a decision about buying or selling a stock for our equity portfolios, Every single time we take into account the ESG the performance of those companies. Now, what do I mean by the ESG performance? It means, as many people are familiar with these days, the environmental, social and governance performance of the companies in question. So for all our portfolios, every time a portfolio manager is looking to perhaps invest in a new company, one of the first things they'll do is they look at whether that company has uh, perhaps a history of polluting from its factories. They look at whether the board is appropriately structured. Does it have an independent chairman? Does it have a properly constituted audit committee? They look at its commitment to climate change. Has it got a credible plan in place to reduce carbon emissions? If it's a bank, they might look at things like cybersecurity. If it's a mining company, they might look at how it treats indigenous communities um, when it goes in and builds a new mine in a remote location and so on and so forth. So it obviously depends on the company, the kind of issues you look at. And built into our investment process then, the buy-or-sell decision is a ranking system or a scoring system which takes into account how those companies perform. Now, I could give you the more theoretical answer, which talks about how it's built into our DNA, as almost every investment manager in the world says these days, about how ESG and responsible investing is built into what we do. And it's true, but everybody says it, so people don't necessarily pay much attention to that. (laughs) I could talk about what we do on the engagement side, how we build it into the proxy voting. There are all kinds of aspects that are very relevant to this, but to a degree, everybody these days at least says they now do it. They have this greenwashing phenomenon. So I think the easiest way to explain it in our terms, in terms of what we do, is every single buy and sell decision takes account of how those companies are doing on the E, the S and the G, the environmental, social and governance that I described earlier. So that's absolutely key in terms of what we do. And we can talk about why we do it, perhaps, and we can talk in more detail about those other aspects like proxy voting and engagement, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the key element. It drives every single buy and sell decision we make. You mentioned the why there, and I want to get into that. You also touched on the greenwashing phenomenon. And certainly, I think it's safe to say everybody in the market today wants to tout their ESG credentials. So I guess my question for you is, as you think about responsible investing, what is the driving force behind this commitment? Is this based on a moral thing? The company is trying to do something to improve the world? Or is this really an economic, like there is profit to be made by focusing on ESG investments? I firmly and strongly believe it's both. But let me get into a bit more detail on that. So the first thing is that if we go back five or 10 years and you look at the academic studies that showed whether what was then probably called ethical investing or SRI investing, the the terminology changes every few years, but that's what it was called five or 10 years ago. That style of investing in those days consisted mostly of perhaps not investing in tobacco stock or avoiding weapon stocks. And if you had a bits and pieces, but basically it was pretty basic. It was pretty simple. And it just meant not buying the bad stuff in moral terms. 
the academic evidence in those days showed actually that if anything, that lost your performance, that it didn't make a lot of sense, perhaps counterintuitively, but it didn't make a lot of sense to not invest in a significant percentage of the market, like tobacco stocks or oil stocks or weapon stocks, which whatever about the morality were actually in some cases quite successful businesses. And that led to a sort of a view out there amongst many investors that that is still the case. And that even today, using ESG investing, as we call it, our responsible investing principles in investing in some way costly performance. But actually, the academic studies have changed. And that's not surprising because the nature of ESG and responsible investing has changed too. So ESG investing today is about way, way more than just not investing in the bad stuff. Yes, to an extent, it still consists of an element of not investing in companies with a large exposure to weapons, perhaps tobacco and, and other sectors. There's a bit of that. But much more so, it looks at the entirety of every company's operations in terms of how its track record is in the area of the environment, in the area of its impact on society, in the area of its governance. ESG investing today looks at the strengths and weaknesses of companies across a myriad of headings, maybe 30, 40, 50 different headings that ESG investors would look at when assessing a company. And the academic evidence today would tell you that in general, that type of approach to investing actually helps investment performance, not hurts. So the old model was it was a trade-off between doing the right thing morally and getting a good investment return. That trade-off is gone. And we will certainly firmly believe, and I think that is backed up by a lot of evidence, that in fact, ESG investing, all things being equal, and it can be difficult to measure at times, etc., but in general, helps performance. But there's a moral side of it too. Moral is a funny word for investors to be talking about in a way. It's just, that's something we talk about a lot. Well, you can call it moral, you can call it ethical, you can call it anything you want. But I think there is an element of that too. For example, if we believe, as we do, that looking at the carbon emission plans of a company and its plans to deal with the impact of climate change or its plans to address climate change will not only help us get a good sense of how that company is likely to perform in future years, which we think it will, but also that doing that may have some sort of a benefit to society and environment through encouraging companies to tackle climate change, which is a huge issue for investors. I mean, investors typically, pension fund investors in particular, are long-term investors. They often are investing with a 40 to 50-year timescale. And imagine what the world economy will look like and what some of the companies in it will look like if we do nothing to tackle climate change. I mean, it's a yeah. big financial issue, not just a moral issue, a big financial issue for long-term investors. But if you think that you can, number one, have a better sense of how a company is likely to perform by looking at its climate change credentials. Number two, that by looking at how a company is dealing with climate change, that you are assessing how it might be affected by climate change issues, which is a huge issue coming down the track over the next everything from five years to 40 years out. And number three, have a benefit to society and the environment through uh, encouraging companies strongly to tackle the climate change issue in its products and supply chains and in everything it does. There's no trade-off between them. They all point the same direction. All three factors point to taking the ESG performance of companies into account, that there isn't an investment downside to it. So it's not just a moral issue. It's not just a financial issue. They both tend to point in the same direction in most cases in our view. So you talked there about how ESG at the investing level has changed. The academic studies around it have got more sophisticated and shown that it is actually beneficial. Have investor attitudes towards ESG also changed at a simultaneous pace alongside this? I think they have, actually, in fairness. Put it this way, 
we're an institutional investor, so we normally deal, not always, but we normally deal with very large, perhaps pension fund investors, sovereign wealth funds, maybe uh, large wealth managers around the world who are distributing investment products to their customers. So we're dealing with pretty sophisticated investors. Now, if I go back five years, I suppose, or something around that time frame, it was very rare to be asked about these issues in tender documents. Most of our business is one through tender. So a large, uh, let's say, sovereign wealth fund somewhere in the world puts out a tender document and says, we want to appoint somebody to manage 100 million or 500 million or a billion or whatever of a particular type of investment. And we apply for it and we fill in the tender documents, usually called RFPs in our industry and in many industries. And those RFPs might casually have mentioned ESG investing five years ago. Maybe one in five or one in 10 of them would have mentioned it. And really, they say something along the lines of, you do do something basic on ESG, don't you? I'm not saying they would have used those words, but that's essentially what they were asking. Just tell us that you do something in ESG so we can tick the box and move on to the next topic. Now, the world has changed completely. And RFP documents, tender documents today could easily have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 questions within them asking us as a potential investment manager for their assets really, really detailed questions about, for example, do we measure the alignment of our portfolio with the goals of the Paris Agreement? Asking is what is our attitude to social or gender diversity? Gender diversity is a topic that might come up a lot at the moment, or perhaps there can be topical issues such as Black Lives Matter over the last year or two. We've been asked a lot of questions about racial diversity in the companies that we invest in, how we take that into account in our investment process. And a whole myriad of other questions, of course, questions such as do we invest in companies involved in the weapons trade or tobacco and things like that. But really, much more so recently, really detailed and I would say sophisticated, intelligent, complex questions about exactly how we tackle major environmental and social issues. So it's not us that's driving that necessarily as an investment manager. We've been doing this for 20 years, but we're a bit unusual. We launched our first ESG themed funds way back in the year 2000. So we're doing this for a long time, but that's unusual. We wouldn't be normal. But what is much more interesting, I think, in terms of telling us what's really happening in the industry is to see the world's largest investors absolutely putting an enormous emphasis on checking the ESG credentials of their investment managers. And I think when you see the very biggest and most sophisticated investors in the world doing it, that inevitably, to the extent it hasn't already, trickles down to the medium-sized funds and then the small funds. That's coming from the very top in terms of the size spectrum. But separate entirely to that, you're seeing a large number of, for example, millennial investors, individual investors with far more interest in in topics like climate change and gender diversity and Black Lives Matter and many, many other issues like that than the older generation would have. To a degree, you're seeing more women in senior management positions in big asset owners and so on as well. And they tend to have a stronger interest in this as well. So it is being driven both at the top and the bottom. So it's bottom up from millennials. It's top down from the world's most sophisticated asset owners that really believe that this is a very important thing to analyze. So from every direction, really, the strength of interest in the topic is not just growing. I would say it's exploding over the last few years. And it's not the last 10 years. I've said a couple of times in this podcast, maybe every five years, but you know, really, it's probably only in the last two to three years that it's really taken off at the scale and the pace. And I suspect that will last for some time yet. So I wanted to drill down on on something you alluded to earlier, where you kind of talked about different considerations you look at when investing in a firm. How do you effectively evaluate? What is the process for evaluating whether an investment is sound from an ESG perspective? And and sort of what I mean by that is you you talk about, for example, board structure. I imagine that's a fairly easy one if you're investing in, say, a public company. But something like the pollution output of a given firm 
I presume is slightly harder to find that exact information out. So I'm kind of interested in, in the process you go through for evaluating these things. Well, actually, there are several big suppliers out there, providers of this type of information who, for the usual large fee, will supply us with the information we need to make these kind of decisions. It's not actually that difficult. I mean, they're pretty well known in our industry. The leaders will probably be firms like MSCI ESG Research or Sustainalytics. They're probably the biggest two, but there's another half dozen as well who in some cases are a bit more niche and they specialize in one particular aspect. But the likes of those two I mentioned and others will give us, not for every company on every stock market in the world, but certainly for the vast majority of certainly large and medium and well, all large and medium companies and the majority of even smaller companies, they supply us with a, a lot of information. I mean, typically from our supplier, we can get a PDF report that will be somewhere between, I don't know, maybe 10 pages and maybe 30 pages, maybe larger for really large and complex companies. In that report, we will have a wealth of data and information. It will talk in great detail about uh, the compensation of the board, for example, and whether that's properly aligned with the success of the company or with the interests of shareholders. There'll be a section, which is really important these days, on climate change and carbon metrics. Uh, What uh, emission reduction targets does this company have in place? When do they put them in place? Is that aligned with the Paris Agreement or not, insofar as we can tell? Sometimes that's difficult, but generally we can do that. Uh, They can do it for us. You asked about pollution. It will absolutely, they will use public source data and NGO data to analyze cases where the company has, for example, been fined for a pollution incident or charged, or perhaps not even legally uh, charged, but accused of perhaps of polluting a local river. If it was picked up in local media or something like that, or picked up by a, a relevant charity or NGO operating in that area. So in one sense, it's a big exercise, but in another, it's where where there's an opportunity to sell data. Uh, Somebody steps into the void and gathers that data and sells it to investors like us. So we get all that data. Not only do we get that sort of PDF report, which is text and numbers, but also you can get specific scores. So you can go to the likes of a Sustainalytics or an MSCI or the other firms out there, Ethics and so on, Isocetics and so on. And you can say, please just give me a data feed that gives every company in our portfolio a score out of 10 for, say, pollution or climate change or corporate governance or whatever it might be. And you can get it as a number. So you can get the commentary, which gives you a flavor and a background for what's happening in that company. Or you could just get a number with the quant people, the mathematics people, like they don't want the text, they don't want the commentary, they just want a number. So you can get that too. And that's pretty readily available. Now, is the data perfect? No. And, and you get some people that will say, Well, I can't understand, for example, how for a given company, one ratings agency, like say MSCI, will give it an A and another will give it a C or something like that. But, you know, that never really bothers me because I read both reports perhaps and make up my own mind or a portfolio manager will, or perhaps it's because they have slightly different methodologies. Once the methodologies are transparent and they provide the data behind those ratings, those scores, then investors generally don't have a problem. I certainly don't have a problem with it. Um, I think it's important that you understand the methodology used by these companies. So you would be surprised, I suppose, to come back to your question, Gary, you would be surprised at the level of detail and data that is available to investors like us when we want to analyze the ESG performance of a company. And that's quite apart from the fact that for many of our portfolio managers, I mentioned that we're managing our ESG teams to portfolios for 20 years. So a lot of these portfolio managers are around for a long time. They've invested in the same companies or similar companies for a long time. They meet the companies regularly or they used to meet them physically. These days it's by Zoom or whatever, but they're in regular contact with these companies. They know them pretty well. So they have access to a lot of information themselves as portfolio managers, quite apart from the data and research that we buy in. We're talking a lot about investing here and stocks. Do you view ESG investing as an asset class specific endeavor 
because to, to my mind, you've explained it very well, and I can understand now how ESG can be readily applied to the equities market. But as you start to look at other areas, you know, obviously at 360 we're focused on FX. Do you think there's opportunities outside of equities for ESG investing? Yes, definitely. I think that ESG and response investing principles can be applied to asset classes other than equities. I should have explained that our firm invests in equities. That's why I tend to talk about equities and shares a lot. We're an equities house. It certainly applies to other asset classes too. You can see that most obviously in corporate bonds. Exactly the same analysis that is done for a company in the case of a listed equity to see how it is performing on environmental, social and governance issues. Exactly that same analysis can be done for a bond issued by that company as it can be for equity issued by that company. And there's no issue there at all. We've also seen in recent years lots of issuance of so-called green bonds, which are bonds issued for some sustainable purpose. So, for example, a company might issue a green bond specifically to raise money to build a wind farm so that it can use renewable energy instead of fossil fuel-based energies. So that's a classic example of green bonds. So ESG is certainly in use in the corporate bond market. For sovereign bonds, and therefore to a degree, by extension, to the currency markets, it gets tricky. How do you really do an analysis in the same way of a country that you do for a company? Well, the answer is that some people are starting to do that more recently. And there are services out there that will look at a country in the same way as they look at a company. So they look at a country and they will see, does it follow basic democratic principles? Are the courts independent of government? Are there free and fair elections in that country? And on the social side, they look at what is the level of education? Is there free education for all up to the age of 12, up to the age of 15, up to the age of 18, for example? They look at environmental issues, most obviously, at the extent to which a country is committed to reducing its carbon emissions in line with the Paris Agreement, but there are other environmental commitments as well, other environmental international treaties. And they can put together an analysis of a country and a rating of a company. So for the sake of argument, uh, Sweden, off the top of my head, I haven't checked this, but I imagine would have a very high sovereign rating in ESG terms. And perhaps China, I'm sorry to say, probably would have a low one. I mean, you could argue that, and I'm not picking on China in that way, but just taking those two as examples that come to mind. Then where it gets interesting is that may mean that if you want to take ESG into account in constructing a sovereign bond portfolio, you're going to overweight Sweden and underweight China. Where it gets more interesting, really, as I was saying, is do you also apply that to exchange rates and start saying that the Swedish krona should have a higher than otherwise would be the case exchange rate against the RMB? Strikes me that's a bit of a stretch, to be honest. Uh, I'm not sure how ESG is going to make its way into the foreign exchange market. I do know that explosion of ESG, as I mentioned already, uh, is happening. An explosion of interest in ESG is happening right across the world in all asset classes. And therefore, I think it won't be long before somebody tries to apply in a sensible and rational way ESG principles to the FX market. It's difficult right now, it seems to me, looking in from the outside. I'm not an FX specialist, but it's difficult to see how that works right now. But there's such an explosion of interest in this uh, across all asset classes uh, that I think it has to happen. Oh, and fantastic insights on a really interesting subject that, as you said, is only going to grow and become a bigger and more important part of all of our business lives. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me and talk about that today. I appreciate it. Very happy to do so. Thanks very much. And thanks for all our listeners who joined us. Please do join us again next time. Thank you for listening to the 360T Podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.